0: Log Talk Radio.
1: This is Abayomi Azikwe. and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, Abayomi Zikaway. Uh Today is Saturday, April 2nd, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to another edition of our program. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African news Wire report. We'll have dispatches on the recent attack on a fuel depot in Russia uh, by Ukraine forces and the continuing plight of African students fleeing the country to neighboring Eastern European states. The military continues to suppress pro-democracy demonstrations in the Republic of Sudan. We'll have details on that as well. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has called for a inclusive dialogue national dialogue throughout the Horn of Africa State, and the African continent is also facing hyperinflation amid the post-pandemic crisis and the war in Eastern Europe. In the second and third hours, we look back on the 54th anniversary of the martyrdom of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. In Memphis, Tennessee, Uh, we will review uh, the last two major addresses delivered by Dr. King at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. on March 31st, and in Memphis on April 3rd of 1968, the night before he was assassinated. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll go to our musical interlude, and, of course, uh, our theme song, uh, Soldiers of Righteousness, is by Lucky Dubé, a reggae artist uh, from the Republic of South Africa. We're going to listen to a collection of tunes uh, from Lucky Dubé. Let's listen in. i Welcome back and uh, the legendary uh, Lucky Dubé collection of uh, recordings uh, by uh, Lucky Dubé from the Republic of South Africa. Right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment and uh, we're going to be dealing with a number of issues. Our lead story uh, deals with the current situation involving the Russian special military operation in Ukraine. People living near the Belgorod fuel depot inside Russia uh, which has uh, been hit uh, by the Ukrainian armed forces in an airstrike can return to their homes. That's according to Mayor Anton Ivanov. He wrote this in a telegram channel on Friday. Uh, The fire at the oil depot has been localized. There's no threat to life and health of people. All the residents can come back to their homes. The group uh, from the Belgorod arena has already been brought back, uh, he wrote. It was reported uh, that 43 locals had been evacuated uh, from the residential buildings near the burning oil depot. They were accommodated uh, at the Belgorod Arena and provided with hot meals and drinks. Uh, their pets were also taken care of. On Friday morning, a fire broke out at the petroleum depot belonging to the Belgor- that product company uh, after the Ukrainian armed forces had carried out two airstrikes in Belgorod. No one was killed or injured in the incident. Uh, chairman of the Russian investigative committee, Alexander Vashtirin, uh, initiated an investigation into the airstrike. On Friday evening, the Russian emergencies ministry said that the blaze that uh, had been extinguished uh, at the oil depot. Also related uh, to the current uh, Russian special military operation. In Ukraine, uh, there have been continued reports of uh, African youth uh, being harassed and discriminated against uh, as refugees uh, fleeing Ukraine. Now, Wilfred Taba uh, doesn't begrudge the U.S. for swiftly granting humanitarian protection to Ukrainians escaping Russia's devastating invasion of their homeland, but the 27-year-old who fled Cameroon during its ongoing conflict can't help but wonder uh, what would happen if the millions fleeing that Eastern European nation were of a different hue. As the U.S. prepares to welcome tens of thousands of Ukrainians fleeing war, the country continues to deport scores of African and Caribbean refugees back to unstable and violent homelands where they face rape, torture, arbitrary arrests, and other abuses. They do not care about a black man, uh, the Columbus, Ohio, resident said, referring to the U.S. politicians. The difference is really clear. Uh, they know what is happening over there, and they have decided to close their eyes and ears. Our concerns uh, echo protests uh, against the swift expulsion of Haitian refugees crossing the border this summer without a chance to see asylum. Not to mention the frosty reception African and Middle Eastern refugees have faced in Western Europe compared with how these nations have enthusiastically embraced displaced Ukrainians. In March, uh, when President Joe Biden uh, made a series of announcements welcoming 100,000 Ukrainian refugees granting temporary protected status to another uh, 30,000 already in the U.S. and halting Ukrainian deportations, two Democratic lawmakers seized on the moment to call for similar humanitarian considerations for Haitians. Uh, There's every reason to extend uh, the same level of compassion. U.S. Representatives Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts and the Mondaire Jones of New York wrote to the administration noting more than 20,000 Haitians have been deported despite continued instability after the assassination of Haiti's president and a powerful earthquake uh, just this last past summer. Cameroonian advocates uh, have similarly ratcheted up their calls for humanitarian relief, protesting in front of the Washington residents of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and the offices of leading members of Congress this month. Their calls come as hundreds of thousands in Cameroon have been displaced in recent years by the country's civil war between its French-speaking government and English-speaking separatists, attacks by the terrorist group Boko Haram and other regional conflicts. The advocacy group uh, Human Rights Watch, uh, just this last past February, found many Cameroonians deported from the United States suffered persecution and human rights violations upon returning uh, to their West African countries. The Taba, uh, who is a leading member of the Cameroonian American Council and advocacy Group, organizing protests this month, said that a fate he hopes uh, to avoid, hailing from the country's English-speaking Northwest, he said he was branded a separatist and apprehended by the government because of his activism, as a college student. Debaz said he managed to escape, as many Cameroonians have, by flying to Latin America, trekking overland to the U.S.-Mexico border and petitioning for asylum, and this was in uh, 2019. I will be held in prison, tortured, and even killed if I am deported, he said. I'm very sacred. I'm very scared. As a human, uh, my life matters too. The Department of Homeland Security, which oversees the TPS, and other humanitarian programs declined to respond to the complaints of racism in the American immigration policy. It also declined to say uh, whether it was weighing uh, granting TPS to Cameroonians and other African nationals, saying in a written statement only that it will continue to monitor the conditions in their various countries. The agency noted, however, that it was recently issued TPS designation for Haiti, Somalia, Sudan, South Sudan all African and Caribbean nations, as well as to more than 75,000 Afghans living in the United States after the Taliban uh, seized power in that central African nation uh, just this last past August. Haitians are among the largest and longest-tenured beneficiaries of temporary protective status, with more than 40,000 currently on the the list. However, uh, thousands upon thousands of Haitians were denied admission to the United States under the Biden administration, and deported uh, back to their countries, even though many had not been there uh, for more than a decade. In Ethiopia, uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed called on fellow citizens from all walks of life to exert utmost effort in making the upcoming national dialogue successful and effective. In his recent Twitter message, Abiy stated that the national dialogue has to be well-reaped, And all Ethiopians have to generally assist the process with unequivocal sense of belongingness. He further said that the national dialogue will be a helm to transform history and a viable means to lay nation uh, on unwavering foundations if Ethiopia makes use of the chance and nurture it as a diamond. He said that we should right now work from dawn to dusk to well exploit the golden chance falls in our palm uh, in the inclusive national dialogue, which is capable of unraveling all long heap political challenges rolling for years and reached this time. If we consider this precious opportunity as a trivial incident, we will lose it as a, at ease and get Ethiopia and citizens' fate sprinkled in vain, he said. In the message, uh, the prime minister called on contending parties to be actively Participants uh, in the national dialogue, apart from being prime owners of the process, in the effort exerted towards making the process successful and a swift one, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswatch segment of the Pan-African Journal. In the Republic of Sudan, a protester was shot in the capital of Khartoum uh, just two days ago by the security services, and the latest demonstrations that have rejected the military coup despite the recent U.S. sanctions against the systematic and widespread use of extreme violence. In a statement seen by the Sudan Tribune, the Central Committee of Sudan's Doctors said that Asim Hassab al-Rasul in his second decade of life died after being shot in the chest uh, by the forces on March 31st. The coup authority is still using deadly violence against the peaceful protesters who are still committed to nonviolence, which has proven its strength against bullets and the security arsenal, said the pro-democracy medical group. The death toll uh, from the anti coup protesters until now has, has risen uh, to 93 uh, since October. The resistance committees call for another protest this coming April the 6th. Eyewitnesses told the Sudan Tribune that the police and the Central Reserve Forces used excessive violence against the demonstrators in central Khartoum City as they fired tear gas and live ammunition to disperse the protesters. The coup leaders say they are willing to hand over power to a civilian government to be formed at the end of an U.N. AU-EGAD-facilitated process. The international and regional mediators in vain have urged the military authorities to stop violence against protesters to create a conducive environment for dialogue. And finally, uh, the African continent is also uh, being whacked uh, by an inflationary spiral. Uh, In Africa, governments are stepping up their efforts to mitigate the impact of the Russia-Ukraine crisis on their citizens' wallets. According to the United Nations uh, Organization on Development data, no less than 25 African countries import more than a third of their wheat from Russia and Ukraine and import more than half. Uh, and two count- countries, Benin and Somalia, import 100%. So how is Africa trying to limit the impacts of this crisis? Ghana has recently embarked on the transformation of public, several public services. An identity card serves as a biometric passport and tax identification number. In this way, the country intends to mobilize domestic revenue and prosecute all those who evade taxes before the end of the year. This digital policy, which affects all sectors, should be a response to financial exclusion and the predominance of the informal sector. Burundi coffee sector uh, is also struggling to rebound. In Burundi, coffee accounts uh, for nearly 40% of export resources and supports 8 million Burundians. With the failure of the privatization of the sector, the state has been running the sector since 2019, but production remains low, Dropping from 34,000 to 6,000 tons for the 2021-22 growing season, coffee growers' discontent is growing, as well as the lack of traceability of all actors involved in the sector. And with that, we're going to conclude the Pan African Newswire sector segment of the Pan African Journal. Now, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. And since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Wire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and Global Affairs, if you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you have to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you would like to, of course, uh, have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, worldwide wide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday April 2nd, uh, 2022, all you need to do is go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. And that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And by logging on to uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal, not only can you have access to today's uh, program uh, for Saturday, April 2nd, 2022, uh, you can also have access to well over 1,100 other archived editions of uh, the Pan-African Journal. This is uh, Abayomi Azikwe. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program.
0: ¡Gracias! You see, some folks are often blamed and accused, usually for things that they don't do. <laughs> but you see, I know that everybody needs somebody, and I'm so grateful, baby, that I've got you. and... <laughs>
1: Music from the legendary uh, Soul Clan, uh, which included uh, people such as Joe Tex, uh, Arthur Conley, Don Covey, among others. That's how I feel. And uh, we feel uh, wonderful here at the Padden African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. 40 years ago on month, uh, in fact, that uh, it was 50. Fifty-four years ago, on Monday, April fourth, nineteen sixty-eight, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, and martyred, in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, there to support a all-African sanitation workers' strike that had uh, paralyzed the city for two months, King was on the verge of uh, launching the Poor People's Campaign, uh, which uh, in just a few weeks uh, after his Assassination was scheduled uh, to, in fact, uh, defend upon Washington, D.C., to demand immediate action from the U.S. Congress and the federal government on the question of jobs and income for all poor people and poor working people in the United States. King was also in staunch opposition to the U.S. military occupation and war against the Vietnamese people. In fact, uh, it is our contention that these are the reasons why He was assassinated on April 4th of 1968. Uh, We're going to listen to uh, a sermon uh, delivered uh, by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. just four days uh, prior to his assassination. Uh, This sermon was delivered at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. on Sunday morning, March 31st of uh, 1968. Let's listen in.
2: I need not pause to say how very delighted I am to be here this morning and to have the opportunity of standing in this very great and significant pulpit. It is always a rich and rewarding experience to uh, take a, deep, a brief break from our day-to-day demands in the struggle for freedom and human dignity, and discuss the issues involved in that struggle with concerned friends of goodwill all over our nation. And certainly it is always a deep and meaningful experience to be in a worship service. And so, for many reasons, I'm Happy to be here today. I would like to use as a subject from which to preach this morning, Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution. The text for the morning is found in the book of Revelation. There are two passages there that I would like to quote. It's in the 16th chapter of that book. Behold, I make all things new. Farmer things are passed away. I'm sure that most of you have read that A resting little story from the pen of Washington Irving, entitled Rip Van Winkle. The one thing that we usually remember about the story is that Rip Van Winkle slept 20 years. But that is another point in that little story that is almost always completely overlooked. it was a sign in the inn from which Rip went up in the mounting for his long sleep. When Rip Van Winkle went up in the mounting, the sign had a picture of King George III of England When he came down, twenty years later, the sign had a picture of George Washington, the first President of the United States. And Rip Van Winkle looked up at the picture of George Washington, but in looking at the picture he was amazed. He was completely lost. He knew not who he was. And this reveals to us that the most striking thing about the story of Rip Van Winkle is not merely that Rip sw- uh, slept twenty years, but that he slept through a revolution. While he was peacefully snoring up in the mountain, a revolution was taking place that had points with chains the course of history and Rip knew nothing about it. He was asleep. Yes, he slept through a revolution. One of the great liabilities of life is that all too many people find themselves living amid a great period of social change, and yet they fail to develop the new attitude The new mental responses that the new situation demands, they end up sleeping through a revolution. That can be no gainsaying of the fact that the great revolution has taken place in the world today, in the sense it is a triple revolution. That is a technological revolution with the impact of automation and cybernation. Then that is a revolution in weaponry with the emergence of atomic and nuclear weapons of warfare. Then that is a human rights revolution with the freedom explosion that has taken place all over the world. Yes, we do live in a period where changes are taking place, and that is still the voice crying through the vista of time, saying the whole, I make all things new. Former things are passed away. Now whenever anything new comes into history, it brings with it new challenges and new opportunities. And I would like to deal with the challenges that we face today as a result of this triple revolution that has taken place in the world today. First, we are challenged to develop a world perspective. No individual can live alone. No nation can live alone. And anyone who feels that he can live alone is sleeping through a revolution. The world in which we live is geographically one, the challenge that we face today is to make it one in terms of brotherhood. Now it's true that the geographical oneness of this age has come to be in, to a large extent, through modern man's scientific ingenuity. The modern man, through his scientific genius, has been able to dwarf distance and place time in chains. And our jet planes have compressed into minutes distances that once took weeks and even months. All of this tells us that our world is a neighborhood. Through our scientific and technological genius, we have made of this world a neighborhood, and yet we have not had the ethical commitment to make of it a brotherhood. But somehow and in some way we've got to do this. We must all learn to live together as brothers, or we will all perish together as fools. We are tied together in the single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, and whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. For some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be, and you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the way God's universe is made. This is the way it is structured. John Donne caught it years ago and placed it in graphic terms. No man is an island in time itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And he goes on toward the end to say, Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind, therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. We must see this and believe this and live by it. If we are to remain awake uh, through a great revolution, Secondly, we are challenged to eradicate the last vestiges of racial injustice from our nation. I must say this morning that racial injustice is still the black man's burden and the white man's shame. It is an unhappy truth that racism is a way of life for the vast majority of white Americans, spoken and unspoken, acknowledged and denied, subtle and sometimes not so subtle. The disease of racism permeates and poisons a whole body politic. And I can see nothing more urgent than for America to work passionately and unrelentingly to get rid of the disease of racism. Something positive must be done, and everyone must share in the guilt as individuals and as institutions. The government must certainly share the guilt. Individuals must share the guilt. Even the church must share the guilt. We must face the sad fact that at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning when we stand to sing, in Christ there is no East nor West. We stand in the most segregated hour of America. The hour has come for everybody and for all institutions, for the public sector and the private sector, to work to get rid of racism. Now if we are to do it, we must honestly admit certain things and get rid of certain myths that have constantly been disseminated all over our nation. One is the myth of time. It is the notion that only time can solve the problem of racial injustice. And there are those who often sincerely say to the Negro and his allies in the white community, Why don't you slow up? Stop pushing things so fast. Only time can solve the problem And if you will just be nice and patient and continue to pray in a hundred or two hundred years, the problem will work itself out. That is an answer to that myth, and it is that time is neutral. It can be used either constructively or destructively. And I'm sorry to say this morning that I'm absolutely convinced. That the forces of ill will in our nation, the extreme rightists of our nation, the people on the wrong side, have used time much more effectively than the forces of goodwill. And it may well be that we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and the violent actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence and indifference of the good people who sit around and say, Wait on time. Somewhere we must come to see that human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and the persistent work of dedicated individuals who are willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, Time itself becomes an ally of the primitive forces of social stagnation. So we must help time and realize that the time is always right to do right. Now that is another myth that still gets around. It is a kind of over-reliance on the bootstrap philosophy. there are those who still feel that if the Negro is to rise out of poverty, if the Negro is to rise out of slum conditions, if he is to rise out of discrimination and segregation, he must do it all by himself. And so they say the Negro must lift himself by his own bootstraps. They never stop to realize that no other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. The people who say this never stop to realize that the nation made the black man's color a stigma. But beyond this, they never stop to realize the debt that they owe a people who were kept in for 244 years. In 1863, the Negro was told that he was free as a result of the Emancipation Proclamation being signed by Abraham Lincoln. But he was not given any land to make that freedom meaningful. It was something like keeping a person in prison for a number of years. suddenly suddenly discovering that that person is not guilty of the crime for which he was convicted. And you just go up to him and say, now you are free. But you don't give him any bus fare to get to town. You don't give him any money to get some clothes to put on his back or to get on his feet again in life. Every code of jurisprudence would rise up against this. And yet this is the very thing that our nation did to the black man. It simply said, You are free. And it left them there penniless, illiterate, not knowing what to do. And the irony of it all is that at the same time that the nation failed to do anything for the black man, through an act of Congress, It was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did it give the land, it built land-grant colleges to teach them how to farm. Not only that, it provided county agents to further their expertise in farming, not only that. The years unfolded, it provided low interest rates so that they could mechanize our farms. And to this day, thousands of these very persons are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies every year not to farm. And these are so often the very people who tell Negroes that they must lift themselves by their own bootstraps. It's all right to tell a man to lift himself by his own bootstraps, but it is a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. We must come to see that the roots of racism are very deep in our country, and there must be something positive and massive in order to get rid of all of the effects of racism and the tragedies of racial injustice. And that is another thing closely related uh, to racism that I would like to mention as another challenge. We are challenged to rid our nation and the world of poverty. Like a monstrous octopus. Uh, poverty spreads its nagging prehensile tentacles into hamlets and villages all over our world. Two-thirds of the peoples of the world go to bed hungry at night. They are ill housed, they are ill nourished, they are shabbily clad. I've seen it in Latin America, I've seen it in Africa. I've seen this poverty in Asia. I remember some years ago, Mrs. King and I journeyed to that great country known as India. And I never will forget the experience. It was a marvelous experience to meet and talk with the great leaders of India. And to meet and talk with and speak to thousands and thousands of people all over that vast country. These experiences will remain dear to me as long as the chords of memory shall lengthen. But I say to you this morning, my friends, there were those depressing moments. How can one avoid being depressed when he sees with his own eyes? Evidences of millions of people going to bed hungry at night. How can one avoid being depressed when he sees with his own eyes God's children sleeping on the sidewalks at night? In Bombay, more than a million people sleep on the sidewalks every night. In Calcutta, more than 600,000 sleep on the sidewalks every night. They have no beds to sleep in. They have no houses to go in. How can one avoid being depressed when he discovers that out of India's population of more than 500 million people, some 480 million, make an annual income of less than $90 a year most of them have never seen a doctor or dentist. As I noticed these things, something within me cried out, can we in America stand idly by and not be concerned? And an answer came, oh no, because the destiny of the United States is tied up with the destiny of India and every other nation. And I started thinking of the fact. We spend in America millions of dollars a day to store surplus food, and I said to myself, I know where we can store that food free of charge in the wrinkled stomachs of the millions of God's children all over the world who go to bed hungry at night, and maybe we spend far too much of our national budget establishing military bases around the world rather than bases of genuine concern and understanding that not only do we see poverty abroad, I would remind you that in our own nation there are about forty million people who are poverty-stricken. I have seen them here and there. I've seen them in the ghettos of the North, and I've seen them in the rural areas of the South. I've seen them in Appalachia. I've just been in the process of touring in many areas of our country. And I must confess that in some situations I have literally found myself crying. I was in Marks, Mississippi the other day, which is in Quitman County, the poorest county in the United States. I tell you, I saw hundreds of little black boys and black girls walking the streets with no shoes to wear. I saw their mothers and their fathers trying to carry on a little Head Start program, but they had no money. The federal government hadn't funded them. They were trying to carry on and they raised a little money here and there, trying to get a little food to feed the children, trying to teach them a little something. And I saw mothers and fathers who said to me, not only were they unemployed, but they didn't get any kind of income, no old age pension, no welfare check or anything. I said, How do you live? They say, Well, we go around, go around to the neighbors and ask them for a little something. When the berry season comes, we pick berries. When the rabbit season comes, we hunt and catch a few rabbits. And that's about it. And I was in Newark and Harlem just this week. And I walked in to the homes of welfare mothers. I saw them in conditions, no, not with wall-to-wall carpet, but wall-to-wall rats and roaches. I stood in an apartment. And this welfare mother said to me, the landlord will not repair this place. I've been here two years. He had made a single repair. She pointed out her little boy, who was the victim of lead poisoning. She pointed out the walls with all of the ceiling falling through. She showed me the holes where the rats came in. And she said, night after night, we have to stay awake to keep the rats and the roaches from getting to the children. I said, how much do you pay for this apartment? She said, a hundred and twenty-five dollars. I looked and I thought and said to myself, it isn't worth sixty dollars. Poor people are forced to pay more for less. Living in conditions day in and day out, where the whole area is constantly drained without being replenished, it becomes a kind of domestic colony. And the tragedy is so awful. These 40 million people are invisible. Because America is so affluent, so rich, because our expressways carry us away from the ghetto, we don't see the poor. Jesus told a parable one day, and he reminded us that a man went to hell because he didn't see the poor. His name was Dives. He was a rich man. And there was a man by the name of Lazarus, who was a poor man, but not only was he poor, he was sick. Sores were all over his body. He was so weak that he could hardly move. But he managed to get to the gate of Dives every day, wanting just to have the crumbs that would fall from his table. Dives did nothing about it. And the parable ends saying, "Dives went to hell, And there was a fixed gulf now between Lazarus and Dives. And that is nothing in that parable which says thevies went to hell because he was rich. Jesus never made a universal indictment against all wealth. It is true that one day a rich young ruler came to him, and he advised him to sell all. But in that instance, Jesus was prescribing individual surgery and not setting forth a universal diagnosis. And if you will look at that parable with all of its symbolism, you will remember that a conversation took place between heaven and hell, and on the other end of that long distance call between heaven and hell was Abraham in heaven, talking to dives in hell. Now, Abraham was a very rich man. If you go back to the Old Testament, you see that he was the richest man of his days. So it was not a rich man in hell talking with a poor man in heaven. It was a little millionaire in hell talking with a multimillionaire in heaven. Dives didn't go to hell because he was rich. Dives didn't realize that his wealth was his opportunity. It was his opportunity to bridge the gulf that separated him from his brother Lazarus. Dives went to hell because he passed by Lazarus every day and he never really saw him. He went to hell because he allowed his brother to become invisible. Dives went to hell because he maximized the minimum and minimized the maximum. Indeed, Dives went to hell because he sought to be a conscientious objector in the war against poverty. And this can happen to America, the richest nation in the world. There's nothing wrong with that. This is America's opportunity help bridge the gulf between the haves and the have-nots. And the question is whether America will do it. There's nothing new about poverty. What is new is that we now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. And the real question is whether we have the wheel. In a few weeks, Some of us are coming to Washington to see if the will is still alive or if it is alive in this nation. We're coming to Washington in a poor people's campaign. Yes, we're going to bring the tired, the poor, the huddled masses. We're going to bring those who have known long years of hurt and neglect. We're going to bring those who've come to feel that life is a long and desolate corridor with no exit sign. We're going to bring children and adults and old people, people who've never seen a doctor or dentist in their lives. We're not coming to engage in any any uh, histrionic gesture. We're not coming to tear up Washington. We are coming to demand that the government will address itself to the problem of poverty. We read one day, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But if a man doesn't have a job or an income, he has neither life nor liberty and the possibility for the pursuit of happiness. He merely exists. We're coming to ask America to be be true to the huge promise, sorry note that it signed years ago. We're coming to engage in dramatic, nonviolent action, to call attention to the gulf between promise and fulfillment, to make the invisible visible. Why do we do it this way? We do it this way because it is our experience that the nation doesn't move around questions of genuine equality for the poor and for black people until it is confronted massively, dramatically in terms of direct action. Great documents are here to tell us something should be done. We met here some years ago in the White House Conference on Civil Rights, and we came out with the same recommendations that we will be demanding in our campaign here. But nothing has been done. The President's Commission on Technology, Automation, and Economic Progress Recommended these things some time ago. Nothing has been done. Even the urban coalition made up of mayors of most of the cities of our country and the leading businessmen have said that these things should be done. Nothing has been done. The Kerner Commission came out with its report just a few days ago and then made specific recommendations. Nothing has been done. I submit that nothing will be done until people of goodwill put their bodies and their souls in motion, and it will be the kind of soul force brought into being as a result of this confrontation that I believe will make the
1: difference.
2: Yes, it will be a poor people's campaign, this is a question facing America. Ultimately, a great nation is a compassionate nation. America has not met its obligations and its responsibilities to the poor. One day, we will have to stand before the God of history we will talk in terms of things we've done. Yes, we will be able to say we build gargantuan bridges to span the seas. We build gigantic buildings to kiss the skies. Yes, we made our submarines to penetrate oceanic depths. We brought into being many other things with our scientific and technological power. It seems that I can hear the God of history saying, That was not enough! But I was hungry, and ye fed me not. I was naked, and ye clothed me not. I was devoid of a decent sanitary house to live in, and ye provided no shelter for me. And consequently you cannot enter the kingdom of greatness, if ye do it unto the least of these, my brethren. You do it under me. That's the question facing America today. And I want to say one other challenge that we face it is simply that we must find an alternative to war and bloodshed. Anyone who feels, and there are still a lot of people who feel that way, that war can solve the social problems facing mankind, is sleeping through a revolution. President Kennedy said on one occasion, Mankind must put an end to war, A war will put an end to mankind. The world must hear this. I pray, God, that America will hear this before it is too late, because today we are fighting a war. I am convinced that it is one of the most unjust wars that has ever been fought in the history of the world. Our involvement in the war in Vietnam has torn up the Geneva Accord. It has strengthened the military-industrial complex. It has strengthened the forces of reaction in our nation. It has put us against the self-determination of the vast majority of Vietnamese people and put us in the position of protecting a corrupt Greece. regime that is stacked against the poor. It has played havoc with our domestic destinies, and this day we are spending $500,000 to kill every Viet Cong soldier. Every time we kill one, we spend about $500,000, while we spend only $53 a year for every person characterized as poverty-stricken in the so-called poverty program, which is not even a good skirmish against poverty. But not only that, it has put us in a position of appearing to the world as an arrogant nation. And here we are 10,000 miles away from home, fighting for the so-called freedom of the Vietnamese people when we've not even put our own house in order. And we force young black men and young white men to fight and kill in brutal solidarity. And yet when they come back home, they can't hardly live on the same block together. The judgment of God is upon us today, and we could go right down the line and see that something must be done, and something must be done quickly. We have alienated ourselves from other nations, so we end up morally and politically isolated in the world. There's not a single major ally of the United States of America that would dare send a troop to Vietnam. And so the only friends that we have now are a few client nations like Taiwan, Thailand, South Korea, and a few others. This is where we are. Mankind must put an end to war. The war will put an end to mankind, and the best way to start is to put an end to the war in Vietnam, because if it continues, we will inevitably come to the point of confronting China, which could lead the whole world to nuclear annihilation. It is no longer the choice, my friends, between violence and nonviolence. It is either nonviolence or nonexistence, and the alternative to disarmament the alternative to a greater suspension of nuclear tests, the alternative to strengthening the United Nations and thereby disarming the whole world, may well be a civilization plunged into the abyss of annihilation, and our earthly habitat will be transformed into an inferno that even the mind of Dante could not imagine. This is why I felt the need of raising my voice against that war and working wherever I can to arouse the conscience of our nation on it. I remember so well when I first took a stand against the war in Vietnam. The critics took me on, and they had their say in the most negative and sometimes most vicious way. One day a newsman came to me and said, Dr. King, don't you think You're going to have to stop now opposing the war and move more in line with the administration's policy, because I understand that it has hurt the budget of your organization, and people who once respected you have lost respect. People who once respected you have lost respect for you. Don't you feel that you really got to change your position?" I looked at him, and I had to say, Sir, I'm sorry you don't know me. I'm not a consensus leader. I do not determine what is right and wrong by looking at the budget of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference or by taking a sort of Gallup poll of the majority opinion. Ultimately, a genuine leader is not a searcher for consensus, but a mold of consensus. On some positions, Expedient, a coward is asked the question, is ex- expedient and then expediency comes along and asks the question is it politic vanity asks the question is it popular and conscience asks the question is it right and there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular but he must do it because conscience tells him it is right. And I believe today that that is a need for all people of goodwill to come with a massive act of conscience and say, in the words of the old Negro spiritual, we ain't gonna study war no more. This is the challenge facing modern man. Let me close by saying that we have difficult days ahead in the struggle for justice and peace, but I will not yield to a politic of despair. I'm going to maintain hope. As we come to Washington in this campaign, the cards are stacked against us. This time we will really confront a Goliath. God grants that we will be that David of truth set out against the Goliath of injustice, the Goliath of neglect, the Goliath of refusing to deal with the problems, and go on with the determination to make America the truly great America that it is called to be. I say to you that our goal is freedom. I believe we're going to get there because, however much she strays away from it, the goal of America is freedom. Abused and scorned though we may be as a people, our destiny is tied up in the destiny of America. Before the Pilgrim Fathers landed at Plymouth, we were here. Before Jefferson etched across the pages of history the majestic words of the Declaration of Independence, we were here before the beautiful words of the Star-Spangled Banner were written, we were here. And for more than two centuries, our forebears labored here without wages. They made cotton king, and they built the homes of their masters in the midst of the most humiliating and oppressive conditions. And yet out of a bottomless vitality, they continued to grow and develop. If the inexpressible cruelties of slavery couldn't stop us, the opposition that we now face will surely fail. We're going to win our freedom because both the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of the Almighty God are embodied in our echoing demands. And so however dark it is, however deep the angry feelings are and the violent explosions are, I can still sing, We Shall Overcome. We shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long but it bends toward justice. We shall overcome because Carlisle is right, no lie can live forever. We shall overcome because William Cullen Bryant is right, truth quest earth will rise again. We shall overcome because James Russell Lowell is right, as we were singing earlier today, Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne, yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mounting of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation, into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood, thank God for John, who centuries ago out on a lonely, obscure island called Patmos, caught vision of the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, who heard a voice saying, The whole I make all things new. Farmer things are passed away, God grant that we will be participants in this newness, And this magnificent development, if we will but do it, we will bring about a new day of justice and brotherhood and peace. And that day the morning stars will sing together, and the sons of God will shout for joy. God bless you.
1: Welcome back. And that was uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., uh, delivering a sermon at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., just four days before his assassination on March 31st of 1968. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment. Welcome back. And uh, you just heard uh, Fuji Ellington, along with Detroit's own uh, band, Black Murder, with Mary, Don't You Take Me on No Trip. And our final segment uh, deals with the last uh, address by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., delivered on April 3rd, 1968, at Mason Temple. Uh, let's listen in.
2: Thank you very kindly, my friends. As I listened to Ralph Abernathy and his eloquent and generous introduction and uh, then thought about myself, I wondered who he was talking about. (laughs) It's always good to have your closest friend and associate to say something good about you. And Ralph Abernathy is the best friend that I have in the world. I'm delighted to see each of you here tonight in spite of a storm warning. you reveal that you are determined to go on anyhow. Something is happening in Memphis, something is happening in our world. And you know, if I were standing at the beginning of time with the possibility of taking a kind of general and panoramic view of the whole of human history up to now. And the Almighty said to me, Martin Luther King, which age would you like to live in? I would take my mental flight by Egypt. And I would watch God's children in their magnificent trek from the dark dungeons of Egypt through, a rather across the Red Sea through the wilderness on toward the Promised Land. And in spite of its magnificence, I wouldn't stop there. I would move on by Greece and take my mind to Mount Olympus. And I would see Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Euripides, and Aristophanes assemble around the Parthenon. And I would watch them around the Parthenon as they discussed the great and eternal issues of reality, but I wouldn't stop there. I would go on even to the great heyday of the Roman Empire. And I would see developments around there through various emperors and leaders. But I wouldn't stop
0: there.
2: I would even come up to the day of the Renaissance and get a quick picture of all that the Renaissance did for the cultural and aesthetic life of man. But I wouldn't stop there. I would even go by the way that the man for whom I'm named, had his habitat, and I would watch Martin Luther as he taxed his 95 theses on the door at the Church of Wittenberg. But I wouldn't stop there. I would come on up even to 1863 and watch a vacillating president by the name of Abraham Lincoln finally come to the conclusion that he had to sign the Emancipation Proclamation, but I wouldn't stop there. (laughs) I would even come up to the early thirties and see a man grappling with the problems of the bankruptcy of his nation. And come with an eloquent cry that we have nothing to fear but fear itself. But I wouldn't stop there.
0: <laughs>
2: Strangely enough, I would turn to the Almighty and say, if you allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the twentieth century, I will be happy. <laughs> Now, that's a strange statement to make because the world is all messed up, the nation is sick, trouble is in the land, confusion all around. That's a strange statement. But I know somehow that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. And I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men in some strange way are responding. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up. And wherever they are assembled to today, Whether they are in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, the cry is always the same, we want to be free. And another reason that I'm happy to live in this period is that we have been forced to a point where we are going to have to grapple with the problems that men have been trying to grapple with through history, but the demands didn't force them to do it. Survival demands that we grapple with them. Men for years now have been talking about war and peace. But now, no longer can they just talk about it. It is no longer the choice between violence and nonviolence in this world. It's nonviolence or non-existence. That is where we are today. And also in the human rights revolution. If something isn't done and done in a hurry to bring the colored peoples of the world out of their long years of poverty, their long years of hurt and neglect, the whole world is doomed. Now, I'm just happy that God has allowed me to live in this period, to see what is unfolding. And I'm happy that he's allowed me to be in Memphis. I can remember, I can remember when Negroes were just going around As Ralph has said so often, scratching where they didn't itch and laughing when they were not tickled. But that day is all over. We mean business now, and we are determined to gain our rightful place in God's world. And that's all this whole thing is about. We aren't engaged in any negative protest and in any negative arguments with anybody. We are saying that we are determined to be men. We are determined to be people. We are saying We are saying that we are God's children. And that we are God's children. We don't have to live like we are forced to live. Now, what does all of this mean in this great period of history? It means that we've got to stay together. We've got to stay together and maintain unity. You know, Whenever Pharaoh wanted to prolong the period of slavery in Egypt, he had a favorite, favorite formula for doing it. What was that? He kept the slaves fighting among themselves. But whenever the slaves get together, Something happens in Pharaoh's court, and he cannot hold the slaves in slavery. When the slaves get together, that's the beginning of getting out of slavery. Now let us maintain unity. Secondly, let us keep the issues where they are. The issue is injustice. The issue is the refusal of Memphis to be fair and honest in its dealings with its public servants who happen to be sanitation workers. Now we've got to keep attention on that. That's always the problem with a little violence. You know what happened the other day, and the press dealt only with the window breaking. I read the article. They very seldom got around to mentioning the fact that 1,300 sanitation workers are on strike, and that Memphis is not being fair to them. And that Mayor Loeb is in dire need of a doctor. They didn't get around to that. Now we're going to march again, and we've got to march again in order to put the issue where it is supposed to be. force everybody to see that there are 1,300 of God's children here suffering, sometimes going hungry, going through dark and dreary nights, wondering how this thing is going to come out. That's the issue. And we've got to say to the nation, we know how it's coming out, for when people get caught up with that which is right and they are willing to sacrifice for it, there is no stopping point short of victory. <laughs> we aren't going to let any may stop us. We are masters in our nonviolent movement in disarming police forces. They don't know what to do. I've seen them so often. I remember in Birmingham, Alabama, when we were in that majestic struggle there, we would move out of the 16th Street Baptist Church day after day. By the hundreds, we would move out And Bull Connor would tell them to send the dogs for. And they did come, but we just went before the dogs singing, ain't going to let nobody turn me around. (laughs) Bull Connor next would say, turn the fire hoses on. And as I said to you the other night, Bull Connor didn't know history. He knew a kind of physics that somehow didn't relate to the transphysics that we knew about. And that was the fact that there was a certain kind of fire that no water could put out. And we went before the fire hoses. We had known water. If we were Baptists or some other denomination, we had been immersed. If we were Methodists and some others, we had been sprinkled, but we knew water. That couldn't stop us. And we just went on before the dogs, and we would look at them, and we'd go on before the water hoses, and we would look at it, and we'd just go on singing, over my head, I see freedom in there. And then we would be thrown into paddy wagons. And sometimes we were stacked in there like sardines in a can. And they would throw us in and Old Bull would say, take them off. And they did. And we would just go on in the paddy wagon singing, We Shall Overcome. And every now and then we'd get in jail and we'd see the jailers looking through the windows being moved by our prayer. And being moved by our words and our songs, and there was a power there which Bull Connor couldn't adjust, adjust to. And so we ended up transforming Bull into a steer, and we won our struggle in Birmingham. Now we've got to go on in Memphis just like that. I call upon you to be with us when we go out Monday. Now about injunctions, we have an injunction and we are going into court tomorrow morning to fight this illegal, unconstitutional injunction. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. somewhere I read, of the freedom of speech, somewhere I read, of the freedom of press, somewhere I read, that the greatness of America is the right to protest for rights. So just as I say, we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around. We aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. We are going on. We need all of you. And you know what's beautiful to me? It's to see all of these ministers of the gospel. It's a marvelous picture. Who is it that is supposed to articulate the longings and aspirations of the people more than the preacher? Somehow the preacher must have a kind of fire shut up in his bones. And whenever injustice is around, he must tell it. Somehow the preacher must be an Amos when God speaks, who can but prophesy? Again, with Amos, let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like a mighty stream. Somehow the preacher must say with Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, and he's anointed me to deal with the problems of the poor. And I want to commend the preachers, under the leadership of these noble men, James Lawson, one who has been in this struggle for many years. He's been to jail for struggling. He's been kicked out of Vanderbilt University for this struggling, but he's still going on fighting for the rights of his people. (laughs) Reverend Ralph Jackson, Billy Kyle, I could just go right on down the list. It's Time will not permit, but I want to thank all of them, and I want you to thank them because so often preachers aren't concerned about anything but themselves. And I'm always happy to see a relevant ministry. It's all right to talk about long white robes over yonder and all of its symbolism, but ultimately people want some suits and dresses and shoes to wear down here. It's all right to talk about streets flowing with milk and honey. But God has commanded us to be concerned about the slums down here and his children who can't eat three square meals a day. It's all right to talk about the new Jerusalem. But one day, God's preacher... Let's talk about the new New York, the new Atlanta, the new Philadelphia, the new Los Angeles, the new Memphis, Tennessee. This is what we have to do. Now, the other thing we'll have to do is this. Always anchor our external direct action with the power of economic withdrawal. Now, we are poor people. Individually, we are poor when you compare us with white society in America. We are poor. Never stop Get that collectively—that means all of us together. Collectively, we are richer than all the nations in the world, with the exception of nine. Did you ever think about that? After you leave the United States, Soviet Russia, Great Britain, West Germany, France—I can name others. American Negro collectively is richer than most nations of the world. We have an annual income of more than $30 billion a year, which is more than all of the exports of the United States and more than the national budget of Canada. Did you know that? That's power right there if we know how to pool it. We don't have to argue with anybody. We don't have to curse and go around acting bad with our words. We don't need any bricks and bottles. We don't need any Molotov cocktails. We just need to go around to these stores and to these massive industries in our country and say, God sent us by here to say to you that you're not treating his children right. And we come by here to ask you to make the first item on your agenda fair treatment where God's children are concerned. Now, if you are not prepared to do that, we do have an agenda that we must follow. And our agenda calls for withdrawing economic support from you. As a result of this, we're asking you tonight to go out and tell your neighbors not to buy Coca-Cola in Memphis. Go by and tell them not to buy sealed test milk. Tell them not to buy what is all the bread, wonder bread. And what is all other bread, come to Jesse? Tell them not to buy heart bread. As Jesse Jackson has said up to now, only the garbage men have been feeling pain. Now we must kind of redistribute the pain. We are choosing these companies because they have been fair in their hiring policies, and we are choosing them because they can begin the process of saying they are going to support the needs and the rights of these men who are on strike, And then they can move on town, downtown, and tell Mayor Loeb to do what is right. And not only that, we've got to strengthen black institutions. I call upon you to take your money out of the bank's downtown and deposit your money in Tri-State Bank. We want a bank in movement in Memphis. Go by the Savings and Loan Association. I'm not asking you something that we don't do ourselves in SCLC. Judge Hooks and others will tell you that we have an account here in the Savings and Loan Association from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. We are telling you to follow what we are doing. Put your money there. You have six or seven black insurance companies here in the city of Memphis. Take out your insurance there. Now, we want to have an insurance in. Now, these are some practical things that we can do. We begin the process of building a great economic base, and at the same time, we are putting pressure where it really hurts. I ask you to follow through here. Now let me say as I move to my conclusion that we've got to give ourselves to this struggle until the end. Nothing would be more tragic than to stop at this point in Memphis. we got to see it through. And when we have our march, you need to be there. If it means leaving work, if it means leaving school, be there. Be concerned about Your brother, you may not be on track, but either we go up together or we go down together. Let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. One day a man came to Jesus. he wanted to raise some questions about some vital matters of life. At points, he wanted to trick Jesus and show him that he knew a little more than Jesus knew and throw him off base. Now, that question could have easily ended up in a philosophical and theological debate. But Jesus immediately pulled that question from midair and placed it on the dangerous curve between Jerusalem and Jericho. And he talked about a certain man who fell among thieves. You remember that a Levite? And the priest passed by on the other side. They didn't stop to help him. Finally, a man of another race came by. He got down from his beast, decided not to be compassionate by proxy. But he got down with him, administered first aid, and helped the man in need. Jesus ended up saying, this was the good man, this was the great man. Because he had the capacity to project the eye into the thou and to be concerned about his brother. Now, you know, we use our imagination a great deal to try to determine why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. The times, we say they were busy going to a church meeting, an ecclesiastical gathering, and they had to get on down to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be late for their meeting. At other times, we would speculate that there was a religious law that one who was engaged in religious ceremonials was not to touch a human body 24 hours before the ceremony. And every now and then we began to wonder whether maybe they were not going down to Jerusalem, or down to Jericho, rather, to organize a Jericho Road Improvement Association. <laughs> That's a possibility. Maybe they felt that it was better to deal with the problem from the causal root rather than to get bogged down with an individual effect. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 miles, or rather 1,200 feet above sea level. And by the time you get down to Jericho, 15 or 20 minutes later, you are about 2,200 feet below sea level. That's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the Bloody Path. You know it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around, or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking, and he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, love them there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, If I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by, and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's the question before you tonight. Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to my job? Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers. What will happen to all of the hours that I usually spend in my office every day and every week as a pastor? The question is not, if I stop to help this man in need, what will happen to me? The question is, if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? That's the question. Let us rise up tonight with a greater readiness. Let us stand with a greater determination. And let us move on. In these powerful days, these days of challenge to make America what it ought to be, we have an opportunity to make America a better nation. And I want to thank God once more for allowing me to be here with you. You know, several years ago, I was in New York City, autographing the first book that I had written. And while sitting there, autographing books, a demented black woman came up. The only question I heard from her was, are you Martin Luther King? And I was looking down writing, and I said, yes. The next minute I felt something beating on my chest. Before I knew it, I had been stabbed by this demented woman. I was rushed to Harlem Hospital. It was a dark Saturday afternoon that blade had gone through, and the x-rays revealed that the tip of the blade was on the edge of my aorta, the main artery. And once that's punctured, you're drowned in your own blood, that's the end of you. It came out in the New York Times the next morning that if I had merely sneezed, I would have died. Well, about four days later, they allowed me, after the operation, after my chest had been opened and the blade had been taken out, to move around in the wheelchair in the hospital. They allowed me to read some of the mail that came in, and from all over the states and the world, kind letters came in. I read a few, but one of them I will never forget. I had received one from the president and the vice president. I'd forgotten what those telegrams said. I'd received a visit and a letter from the governor of New York, but I'd forgotten what that letter said. But there was another letter that came from a little girl, a young girl who was a student at the White Plains High School. And I looked at that letter, and I'll never forget it said, simply, dear Dr. King, I am a ninth-grade student at the White Plains High School. She said, while it should not matter, I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and of your suffering, and I read that if you had sneezed, you would have died. I'm simply writing you to say that I'm so happy that you didn't sneeze. And I want to say tonight, (laughs) I want to say tonight that I, too, am happy that I didn't sneeze because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960 when students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counters. And I knew that as they were sitting in, they were really standing up for the best in the American dream and taking the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the Founding Fathers in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have been around here in 1961 when we decided to take a ride for freedom and end its segregation in interstate travel. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1962. The Negroes in Old Bennett, Georgia, decided to straighten their backs up. And whenever men and women straighten their backs up, they are going somewhere because a man can't ride your back unless it is bent. If I had sneezed... If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been here in 1963. And the black people of Birmingham, Alabama aroused the conscience of this nation and brought into being the Civil Rights Bill if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have had a chance later that year in August to try to tell America about a dream that I had had if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have been down in Selma, Alabama, to see the great movement there if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have been in Memphis to see a community rally around those brothers and sisters who are suffering. I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze. And they were telling me. Now it doesn't matter now. It really doesn't matter what happens now. I left Atlanta this morning, and as we got started on the plane, there were six of us, the pilot said over the public address system, we're sorry for the delay. But we have Dr. Martin Luther King on the plane. And to be sure that all of the bags were checked and to be sure that nothing would be wrong on the plane. We had to check out everything carefully, and we've had the plane protected and guarded all night. And then I got into Memphis, and some began to say the threats, or talk about the threats that were out, what would happen to me from some of And we as a people will get to the promised land.
0: Go ahead, go ahead.
2: So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord.
1: Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., in his last uh, address in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, on the evening of April 3rd, uh, 1968, at uh, Mason Temple, uh, classic uh, speech, and of course the following day uh, after uh, 6 p.m., uh, Dr. King uh, was gunned down on the balcony of the Lorraine Hotel uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, we're going to, in the next, Episode uh, In our commemoration of the 54th uh, anniversary of uh, the assassination of Dr. King, uh, we're going to, uh, of course, uh, review um, the aftermath of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. on April 4th of uh, 1968. And that's uh, going to uh, conclude our program uh, for uh, today. Uh, If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the uh, live music of the Jimi Hendrix Experience uh, from Stockholm, Sweden, uh, concert on January 8th of 1968. This is uh, Abayomi Azikaway signing off and have a beautiful week.
0: At so I'm going to introduce a radio station in 3. And tonight we're going to feature an interview with a very peculiar looking gentleman that goes by the name of uh, Mr. Paul Crusoe. Mr.
1: Crusoe is going to talk to
0: us on the very dodgy subject
2: of are there or are there not flying soldiers or uh, UFOs. Tell uh, me, Mr.
0: Crusoe. Yes, please. And thank even thank you very much. As you all know, you just can't believe everything you see here, can you? Now, if you'll excuse me, I must be on my way. Thank you. I'm you